1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and they are better than ever. Each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. So head to Fangoria.com now to learn more and to, you know, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your annual subscription. Now on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Red rum! Red rum! Sir! You guys wanna go see a dead body? Well, sometimes. That is better. Hello, and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. This week's guest is not making his first appearance on the King Cast mm. today. Did you know that, Eric? I did know that. I, oh, yeah. He's, he's a long timer. I, I don't know if you know time. this, but I also co-host the show. That is sometimes. true. That is that is true. I have been made aware of that very recently. Uh, eagle-eyed or eared listeners will remember him from his multiple appearances on the KingCast Patreon. But today he's graduated to the main feed. He is the senior Hollywood correspondent for Vanity Fair, the former co-host of the stand-centric Diary of the Mad podcast, and a dude who has interviewed our show's namesake dozens and dozens of times over the years for outlets which remain far more reputable than anywhere Vespi and I ever worked. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Anthony Bresnikin. Anthony, how are you doing? Today? I feel great. I feel like I graduated to the big show, you know? And, you did. Uh, I'm also like uh, such an avid listener of you guys that uh, this is a really special treat. It's going to be weird when I'm out like doing yard work or putting away the dishes and, mm. and, and I, a new episode drops and I put it on and it's me. <laughs> <laughs> You're not doing yard work. Let's be honest. <laughs> oh, I absolutely am. I listen. I listen to you guys when I'm out uh, cutting the lawn and putting in the garden, and whenever I'm just doing out annual labor. Around. Yeah, any kind right. of anything where I'm just like uh, I need to listen to something. Uh, yeah, I put on my podcasts, and you guys. I'm are wondering how you how are you listening to the show while mowing the lawn? I have an electric Without... lawnmower. Mm. Oh, is it is it rumble quiet? It's just like it's just a little hum. You know, it's like vacuuming your lawn. <laughs> hmm. Is this one of your lawn inventions? I have an electric lawnmower. It is. Do you have one that uh, either you need a very small lawn or multiple batteries to to use the one that I got, Ooh, which I was very. Like, well, you know, it's really nice to be on Lawncast today and talk about my yard. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I just have like a, I don't know. It's blue. <laughs> what can I tell you about this? Green. It's, I have a green electric lawnmower, and then uh, I realized, and I bought this whenever I got laid off from Rooster Teeth, and I'm like, well, mm-hmm. I gotta cut back on my on my expenditure so you know that's you know 50 bucks a month for the lawn guy or whatever i'm just gonna go ahead and buy my lawnmower and then i realized how really shitty i am at mowing my lawn yeah and how, <laughs> like i'm like oh i need edging tools and all these other things that uh, to make my lawn just not look like a piece of shit yeah. so i bought this this uh, lawnmower that i uh, now only use whenever my lawn guy is like 
slacking off. See, I have so. like a, I have like a, it's not a huge yard. I live in the burbs, you know, but it's a nice right. little backyard. And I plug this thing in with a, with a, with an extension cord and occasionally roll over the extension cord and sparks fly. Ooh. That's very exciting. <laughs> but, but you guys are with me all the time. Like I put in a garden, I planted all these peppers and tomatoes. I'm listening oh, to nice. you guys chat it up. And then uh, I'm listening to you when I'm pickling the peppers and canning the tomatoes in my kitchen months later. So you guys are my constant companions. I'm going to. God damn, you're living that Oregon trail. No, right? Like, uh, yeah. So I'm like a prepper, I guess, except, you know, I just. Right. If, who wants to live on just jars and jars of peppers? <laughs> yeah. How many jars of peppers do you have in the basement? How many pickled peppers do I have? <laughs> now um we're gonna put these on your on your shop we could put some of my peppers like i these were homegrown listening to the king cast podcast. yeah we'll just write stephen king on them or something mm-hmm. people yeah. will buy it so here's here's two things i want to kick off this episode mm-hmm. with one is the fact that you you provided me with some very good advice before we entered interviewed Stephen King. We'll, we'll talk about that in mm-hmm. a moment. The other is that when I hit you up this morning for a bio to pull from in order to write your intro, yeah. you said, yeah, no problem. And sent me a list of the number of times that you have interviewed Stephen oh. King. <laughs> well, <I don't laughs> and you're like, so here's all the times. And then also I wrote for these couple of places. It was like, it, that's such a, um, was that a flex? This is what we in the industry call a swinging dick maneuver. Oh, okay. Um, well, I don't yes. know. I thought we was- have interviewed Stephen King on the show once. You may have interviewed Stephen King on the show 15 or not on our show, but for your outlets, 15 to 20 times. Yeah. Um, and yet uh, over, we, over we, many years, though, you, your yes, show's over, only been around. Yes, yes, yes. Over many years, Anthony, we were very well aware <laughs> of how intrinsic you are to the life of Stephen King. But um, I'm wondering if you heard the episode that we did with uh, Mr. King and how would you grade the performance as someone who has this much uh, expertise in the interviewing King process. Um, I thought it was very good. And uh, I think you guys handled it really uh, in a way that was uh, sophisticated. You, you, I, I like that you asked uh, I, questions that weren't sort of the common easy thing. Uh, and I love the little joke at the beginning where you were, I, you know, Scott, I think was it you Scott or Eric that was setting him up. Like, you know, we're trying to ask you things that are original and yeah, like, that was me. you were, gonna, you were going to ask, uh, uh, where do you get your ideas? And I think that would have gotten a big laugh, but he anticipated it and he kind of stepped on your joke. But that was, I think, evidence that you guys were in sync. So from that point on, I thought the question that was most interesting was about death mm-hmm. and his thoughts on death and not being afraid. Uh, you know, he's an older guy and he's written about death and being afraid for many years. Yeah, and that one seemed to light him up a little bit. You know? Yeah. He, uh, he he really responded to that one. Um, he was he was a delight to talk to. But mm-hmm. the key piece of uh, advice you gave me, and this would have been a long time ago. This would have been mm-hmm. within like the first six months of us doing the show, I think. And you and I had a conversation about like, you know, getting the king and what that would ultimately take and how to play that when the moment came and and that yeah. sort of thing. I may have even gone to you for advice about that. And I, think, and I yeah. recalled that what you told me was just don't be an ass kisser. Like that's you're not going to get anywhere with ass kissing on this one. Um, yeah, I am I not. Think... I, I and I am not historically an ass kisser. In fact, I'm usually the opposite of that. So I was kind of like, this is perfect. Like I can I can I can play that role very well. No, but you're both enthusiastic and you both care deeply about his work. Sure, so, sure, sure. 
and what I, my advice to you then and to anybody that would be interviewing him would be, you know, you're getting a chance to talk to a guy you admire and a guy whose work means something to you. And your impulse is going to be to say what that work means to you. And I would resist that impulse just because he's heard it a lot. And I'm sure it's not that he's a jerk or that it doesn't matter to him that people care deeply about his work. It just, my impression, and, and again, I'm not in his head. I'm not going to speak for him. It's just that he's heard that a lot. And, and I think it's flattery for anyone gets to be uncomfortable. You know, how, what do you say to it except thank you? I think, you know, if you have a, the, the greatest flattery is there's something in your book that I noticed. Can you talk to me about that? Mm-hmm. And 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 I think that's true of, of, of you know, I, look, I, I have a job where I interview a lot of well-known people and who get a lot of fans rushing up to them saying, I loved you in this and I loved you in that, or I love this song. And yeah, that's great. That I'm happy that means something to you. Where do we go from there? You know, yeah. <laughs> you managed it great because you you asked things that were interesting to you and they also were interesting to him. And and what you got out of it was a great hour of uh, conversation. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. That I really appreciate it. But the uh, I think that for me, once he acknowledged that he's not only that the show he knew of the show, but that he's listened to an episode or two, that that to me was us saying we're huge fans and your work means a lot to us. Yeah. And we were already past that moment. You know, I, I didn't feel the need to be like, Oh, I know who you are. You know? Right. It should be self-evident right. that if we've devoted an entire podcast to your, you and your work that we're fans, you know, I can tell you first time I interviewed him was God, was it what year was Rose red that ABC TV series? It was early uh, 2000s. 2000, yeah. It was 17, maybe t- 20. I believe. Yeah. <laughs> was it, was it 2000, the year 2000? Uh, that was the first time I spoke to him. And, and you know, here's the thing. I, I have interviewed him many, many times. Uh, I've never met him. You guys have met him in person. And That's true. my kids, my kids kind of joke because they know how much Stephen King means to me as a writer. He's he, his work, like a lot of people from my generation uh, inspired me to write my own stuff. You know, I read, Pet Cemetery when I was 12 years old because no one would take me to see the movie. I thought the movie looked cool. I loved the idea of like uh, there being ruins in the woods and uh, <laughs> right. discovering them and there being a story <laughs> there. And, that, and that'll bring us to the man in the black suit, the story we're going to discuss. But he does that very well. This notion that there's something here that was here long before you and will be here long after you that you will never be able to fully understand. That's one of his special tricks. And, uh, you know, nobody would take me to see that movie. And my grandmother bought me the paperback. I'm looking at it right now. It's under glass. It's a, just a beat up old signet that was damaged when I bought it at Kmart. It has Hold no on value. Are you doing your Stephen King origin story unprompted? Ah, uh, shoot. I guess you are I am. upsetting the natural order Uh-oh. of this show. <laughs> if we do Messed not with ask the that forces question, of nature, the, the people will riot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, I, <laughs> I will wait the next question, but, uh, you know, when I, when I first interviewed him, what the upshot I was going to say is when I first interviewed him, I, you know, I, I talked about Rose red. We had a really, for me, a fun conversation. If I were to listen to it again, I would probably cringe at my interviews, interviewing style of, uh, of 20, what is 23 how, year old How me. old were you? Let's, let's do this. Let's, let's flip this thing a little bit. You yeah. because you you've done multiple Patreon episodes of the show. We talked about this beforehand yeah. about whether or not we were going to do your Stephen King origin story. How about we we twist it a little bit for you? Your uh-huh. Stephen King origin story is the first time you actually talked to King. 
Yeah, I got a half got, hour you, with them. You get two Stephen King origin stories here, right. baby. Well, you know, and they're connected, right? So this is what I was going to tell you is, so I guess whatever, whenever Rose Red came out, do we have eyes on when that was? 2000, I think, or 99? It was I very will early. look it up if you insist on the exact date. Uh, Hold I'm just on. Trying to, trying to figure But I was like 23 or 24. I had not, I was not a full-time entertainment writer. I was covering general news for the AP in Los Angeles, which meant earthquakes and plane crashes and wildfires and political protests and all that sort of stuff. I would parachute into whatever the news of the day was. And that also gave me the opportunity because the AP at the time didn't have a massive entertainment staff that if there was something I wanted to write about a movie or TV show or song or singer, I could do it. I could, or or I could pitch it. So I pitched a story and um, about Rose red and I got, ABC, to, he, he was doing like one or two interviews to promote it. He does not do a lot of interviews, which I think is another feather in your cap. And he doesn't, he's not somebody who does the circuit. Right. And we ch- chatted about the show and it was, you know, my focus was how does Stephen King do television? Cause this is really where he began writing things himself. Like it had been adapted and there'd been a few other adaptations. Like sometimes they come back and, in the stand, you know, he was a little more involved with that one, but this, now he was writing original things for television. Mm -hmm. And I was curious how, how that would work for him, given that he writes about extreme things and you can't have extreme things on broadcast television and television back then was not television today, where you have streaming services and HBO and you can, you can have a bit more sophistication and maturity and extremity, you know, or, uh, uh, violence. And then at the end of the conversation, I said, by the way, when I was 12 years old, I really wanted to see Pet Cemetery. I was not a reader. I did book it. Do you guys remember book it? Or oh, yeah. For book it? With the pizza read, hut thing? Where you yeah, get... you read books to get pizza. Like yeah, I would read for yeah, pizza. You know, I would read for pizza. And, and, and then I wanted to see this movie and my grandmother was trying to encourage me to ring, read more grown-up books, and there was no pizza involved. <laughs> There's no pizza reward <laughs> system. Uh, but she, we went to Kmart, and she bought me this beat-up, the last copy of Pet Cemetery on the stands, and uh, I started reading it, and man, I just felt I love that book, I because I feel like it's so sad, and that's a weird thing for somebody who was a kid to say, but it made me feel things, it made me care about this family, the old man. Judd Crandall, he reminded me of my grandfather. I had a little baby brother who was like Gage's age. I was like Ellie reading that book. You know, that's sure. where I was. I wasn't the parents. You know, what they were going through was not, you know, I read it now as a, as a father and I have a very different perspective on it, an equally unsettled perspective. Is it equal though? Isn't there nothing like your first time, right? So, uh, <laughs> so it was, uh, that but I mean, still- but but your your perspective has now completely changed in just in terms of who you're identifying with within the story. Well, you know what's never changed though is uh, the themes of that story have never left me. The notion that life is fleeting and it can go at any second, and maybe you're an old man at the end of his life, or maybe not. You might you might be a toddler who is snatched away. You know. Da, 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 da. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, I wasn't. I wasn't there. I wasn't with it. I'm so sorry. By some, uh, by some tasteless bastard who's gonna play like a little baseball charge theme every time your <laughs> death is mentioned. You know, like, uh, which is uh, look. I, that's your your way of whistling past the graveyard, right? That's right. A yes, indeed. And um, 
And, and, and I know I have had a, and then years later, I had a friend who died when he was a teenager and he died in a car accident. And I saw what that did to his family, tore them apart. And that's what happens to the creeds is they're torn apart by this. And the, the themes that he taps in Pet Cemetery, I think that's an extraordinary book. It's more than a horror story to me. I know it's not his favorite. I've interviewed him about Pet Cemetery and like kind of argued with him about it. Like, come on, this is, you know, this is, how can you say you don't, you know, care for this book? And I think he's put off. I think what puts him off, you know, what he told me put him off about that book is I just think it strikes too deep a nerve. It's too unsettling mm. even for him. He speaks a little too much truth. And it right. is truly about the notion that you can be taken at any time. And what are you going to do with this moment? Because you might not get another one. And the yeah. more you try to scratch and claw to get more, the more it will destroy you. And we lose people. If you can't, obviously there's grieving and there's pain. But if you can't get past that, you may as well be buried with that person because they will pull you down. They will come back and take you. And that's the sad truth of that book. Huh. And, let, me, uh, let me ask you a question. This is going to be, mm -hmm. this is not going to be a, a gentle question. All right. Um, I, 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 and I'll set this up by saying that we've had multiple people on the show now. Yeah. Um, do pick pet cemetery, Mallory Romero, uh, on a Lily, Um, mm -hmm. didn't we do another one? Isn't there a third one, Eric? I think those are the two Guillermo del Toro said that You've if also, he comes back on the show, he really wants to do pet yeah, cemetery. So maybe that's what you think. You promised of. that one. And I'm, I want to hear that one. Oh, we're getting the shit out of Guillermo. Don't worry about that. You know? <laughs> but, but my, my point is that um, anytime we've discussed pet cemetery on the show, it's been with someone who did not have kids. Uh -huh. mm. So what I'm curious of is, and again, this is a really tough question, but as a parent, yeah all things considered equal, would you employ the use of a pet cemetery if uh, pet cemetery like things happened within your real life? What would I, would I, what would I employ it? Like, would I turn to it? Like if I yeah, lost he's trying it, to be uh, gentle and saying that if you lost one of your kids, would you yes, put that's them in your pet cemetery? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, listen, man, I think about it all the time. I was picking my daughter up from magic mountain yesterday and there's this little turnaround, right? She's 12. Right. And, and the, the parents and the lifts and the Ubers drive through and they pick up people and I'm parked on the side and you know, it's the parks closing. So kids are coming out and she sees me and she dashes toward me. And I'm like, stop. <laughs> it's like, it wasn't a near death experience, but there were cars coming. I was like, stop and look. Oh, she and ran course, through the parking lot. No, it's just like a little, it's like a roundabout, right? And so like I'm parked sort of around the side of the circle and she's crossing that circle to come to okay, me. Okay, I see, I see. And I'm like, yo, look, <laughs> look to your right. Like it freaked me out yeah. for a second because people are, you know, trying to squeeze through in, in their cars and kids are dashing out and I'm being cautious and like, yeah, it fucking flashed through my mind. Like you could get hit. I was hit by a car when I was 14. <laughs> what? It threw my shoe off. It's it scuffed me across like a pile of rocks into a stream bed. Wait, I, what were the we're 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 going for the more inception levels down on this? But I know what kind of car was it, and how fast was it? Going? It was I don't know. It was like an it was like a big white 
Oldsmobile Cadillac type thing. I didn't get like a, a good boat. look at it. So like yeah. something like a three thousand pound car. I was going to my friend Chad's house to swim in his pool. It was summertime. I was dashing across this like four lane. I don't know if you we called it the bypass uh, in my town. It was near this big sort of uh, uh, track and field area at the local high school. The light was turning. Uh, it was turning green, and I was in a hurry. And I I was running. I was a jogger, and I was fourteen. And I start running across the road, and the old couple in this Oldsmobile uh, saw the yellow light and sped up instead of slowing down to stop. And uh, they didn't see me because I was running. And if I had been a step behind, I would have been killed. But because I was fleet of foot, and like uh, I was mostly out of the way, my left foot was back. If you picture like a running stance and their right headlight clipped my foot, it snapped my knee. It threw me through the air and uh, I landed in a heap and was pretty jacked up. They scooped me up, put me in the backseat of their car, and drove me to the hospital. What did it feel like? It For a minute, it just felt like, you know, in the movies when you get hit, when there's that scene where they're driving along and all of a sudden you see out of the passenger window a car approaching, and then they mm -hmm. get hit, and then it like just cuts to black for a second. Right. That's what happened. Have and you ever been punched in the face? Sure. <laughs> that's mean, what, yes. Well, that's kind of what getting punched in the face is like. You yeah, know, because you're, you're, everything like swims for a minute and you're like, suddenly you're just knocked off your axis. Yeah. So I spent a summer in a cast, you know, my knee was broken, but the hospital didn't realize that it was broken. They were somehow thought I had just been bruised, but I snapped my knee. It's still, it Wait, still the hurts. People that, <laughs> the people that hit oh. you, drove you to the, did they just, <laughs> they do it yeah. like a drive-by and shove you out in no, front of the oh. emergency? It was like a comedy. They put me in the back seat of the car. I'm crying because I'm scared. I don't know what has happened. I feel like I'm in trouble. I'm panicking. I'm bleeding. <laughs> I have rocks embedded in me. You're missing like, a shoe. I'm missing a shoe. <laughs> I think my uncle went to go get the shoe later. We drive to the hospital. They get out. They're an old couple. Do you, do you guys remember the movie uh, Cloak and Dagger with Henry yeah. Thomas and oh, yeah. uh, Dabney Coleman? Old couple, Dabney Coleman. Remember the old couple they meet? Right. Yeah. The Alamo. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, that's kind of what I picture. <laughs> that's my memory of them is that don't, couple. They were don't just. They turned out like to be like Russian assets from, yeah, or something. Yeah, they were Russian assets. They were like, they were <laughs> right. like the evil. They were. They seemed friendly, but they were nice. So they're they, like the fucking evil. old couple from Mulholland Drive in that movie. <laughs> yeah. So we get out and we're uh, walking into the uh, into the emergency room. I'm hobbling because my knee is broken. <laughs> like I can't walk. And the old guy grasps his chest and he's like. He's feeling it, right? Something's happening. He's stressed out. The orderlies, the nurses swarm him. They put him <laughs> on a gurney. He and his wife are swept into the emergency room and they leave me alone. I'm walking in. <laughs> I'm walking in looking like Victor Pascal, like blood all over me, hobbling. Like I'm a, it was not a compound fracture. So like the bone wasn't sticking out. Right, I could right. not walk. I was had like, that jelly leg. Yeah, it was screaming pain. And then I'm sitting there waiting in the lobby. And one of the nurses is like, are you okay? I'm like, no, I was hit by the couple that you just took in. Like, <laughs> I'm in bad shape. You, you took know? them to get snacks, but I'm the one yeah. that was hurt. I was like, uh, what does Ving Rhames say in Pulp Fiction? I'm pretty fucking far from okay right now. <laughs> <laughs> so I call my mom and she's like, 
put Chad's mom on the phone. She thinks I'm pranking her. I'm like, I would know I was hit by a car. They check me out. They think I'm fine. I don't know why they sent me home, but I go to the orthopedic doctor like the next day and he's like, they yeah, sent you home with a broken. broken fucking knee. Yes, bro. And, and Yeah. Not, not, not the highest quality medical care, I must say. And the orthopedic doctor's like, oh, no, your leg is broken. Your knee is broken. Uh, you're going into a cast, my friend, and uh, it's going to be a while. So I spent that summer just sort of, you know, hobbling around. And then I finally got the cast off in the, the start of school. But my leg was withered to the size of a matchstick, and it yep. could not sustain my weight. Like, I had mm-hmm. to go through therapy to build. I don't know if you guys have ever broken a bone, but, like, yeah, especially yeah, yeah. in your leg. Like, it's one thing for your arm. But like your leg is, is a, that's a load bearing thing, you know? So yep. you know how, like if you're doing an exercise and like, you just can't do the final push, you know, a push up or sit up, you just can't. That's no, I don't know that feeling. I yeah. You're right. talking to two very in shape people. But you know what I mean? Like you just can't yeah. lift it. Any, like, you just, you've done it. Right. 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 It. Right. And like, right. And like, that's what that would happen to my leg. So I had a cane and let me tell you being a 15 year old with a cane is not it's badass. It's not cool. People don't like it's it. It's kind of badass, though. <laughs> Pretty badass. My girl, there was a girlfriend that liked it. There was a really tough girl who's older than me. <laughs> and she was mean to everybody, but she took pity on me. And she would carry <laughs> my bag around. And that was cool. Um, That's awesome. But there was also a kid on the bus who was like, give me your cane. <laughs> 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 and I'm like, no, I needed to walk home. Like, I need this to live. And he's like, give it to me. And he pulled it like on this, you know, he's sitting in front of me and he's pulling the cane. And he cracks the cane in half. Can you imagine a disabled? I was, you know, temporarily, but I was disabled. <laughs> I couldn't walk. And my knee would give out. So I needed the cane as an extra bit of support, or else I would fall over. And this kid like broke it in half. <laughs> well, I'm sure he had his reasons, but going yeah, back to reasons. the original anyway, question. Anyway, so that, that was my Stephen King origin story. Is I lived pet cemetery, but your question was about what my kid, my kids, and yes. like how would I feel? I, I look, I God forbid, like I feel like we're jinxing things by even talking about this, but uh, yeah, I, that, I do not want that to happen. But I do think that story prepares us inevitably for the loss we face in our life. You never want to lose a kid. I know, I know. I know too many people who've lost children and there's no comfort for it. So the right. book is not going to help. I just think it's like a warning. It's a keep away sign. It's, it's not even a keep away. You can't prevent accidents from happening. Right. But like, yes, I think about it all the time. When, whenever my child crosses a road, I think of it whenever I, uh, I, yeah, I'm driving my car and somebody veers in front of me, or you have like a near miss on the freeway. I think of it. And I think the lesson of that book is we cannot avoid tragedy. It's going to find us. And I've people I love, I know people who've lost all of their children. And I'm going to not talk about that because it's probably too personal, but um, there's no words that will ever comfort that. And I think what King is doing with this book and the reason I think it is actually like classic literature is he's talking about something that almost no one else is willing to talk about. And it's, it's just the, it's that inevitable, implacable wall. We're all going to hit at some point. We're all going to lose someone that we can't live without. And um, hopefully it's not a child. That's the worst, but he went to the worst. 
And uh, I think that book means a lot. So anyway, I didn't go, I didn't tell him the full story of getting nailed by a car or all of that. But when I interviewed him to, to rise back up through the inception layers, uh, when I interviewed him, I just said, you know, I read Pet Cemetery as a kid and, and I couldn't believe what you pulled off using just words. And I realized I have access to these tools. Like I loved movies. I couldn't make a movie. I couldn't even make a movie with like my VHS recorder like that. Yeah. That's not a thing. You know, I had friends who did music, who, who recorded music, and they would save their money to get like a four track recorder so they could record like a song. And they had to pay money for that. Like they they had resources. And I realized like I could buy a nice pen at the office supply store, one with like a little squishy thing that you can hold so it doesn't hurt your finger. And I could buy one of those black and white uh, composition notebooks, and I could write my own scary short stories. And I started doing that. And that's what started my writing career. And I think what he did with that book was unlock in me the sense that writing was power. That when you're a kid, everybody, you, you're told what to wear, you're told where to be, when to go, when to shut up, when to go to bed. Like, And yet, if I write a story, I'm in charge. And it might be garbage. The story might be terrible. It's mine. And I can do with it what I want. And I still, when I talk to kids, like I talk to a kid's class or a friend who's a teacher, you know, wants to get his students interested in reading. I say like, when you write something, it might not be like professional quality, but it's yours. And you, you want to imagine a house with a little smokestack and a light on in the night. That's yours. You want to imagine wings breaking out of that roof and a dragon coming out. Like you can do that. Anything you can imagine is yours. And what King did was show me. You don't need any resources except what you can imagine and maybe some ink <laughs> and a piece of paper and you can write. And that started my writing career. And I'm, I have the job I have today and I've interviewed him and other people that I find interesting because that little paperback that I have under glass here right now in my office is, uh, it kind of was the little key. It was my, my opening to a really happy life. Yeah. And then he said, thanks. Yes. <laughs> was like, hey. well, you know, thanks. And I said, like, you know what I remember is like, he, I said, uh, uh, that's exactly what he said. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. You know, like, and then, and then uh, I said, well, what's on, what's going on? What's on the horizon for you, which is a common way I end interviews. You know, somebody can tell me what's next. And he, uh, he mentioned that he was working on an adaptation of Kingdom Hospital. That's how far mm -hmm. back this was. Yeah. And I said, all right, well, 2002, I wish... by the way. Oh, okay. So I was like, I wish, I wish you luck. And he said, thanks. I'll put that in the good luck bank. <laughs> so I was like, cool. Well, it you served know. him well. Yeah. And, you know, over the years, as we've done more and more interviews, we've become friendlier. And uh, I've never met him, as I said. I, I hope I will. My kids tease me because they're like, you know, he's probably the person who has, as I've just described, has this deep meaning for me as a, as a writer. And, and, uh, and, and I've met a lot of other famous, interesting people like you guys have, you know, covering entertainment, but he's one that I haven't met in person. I've never shaken his hand, you know, and, right. uh, but I have, I treasure that I've had many conversations with somebody that I, I like as much as I do. And I actually like him as a person. And I think what you captured was the dude that he yeah. is, you know, like he's, he makes did he make like some kind of dirty joke like while he was talking to you guys there was something that was like probably yeah there was kind of like a rough joke that uh you know you might make sitting around 
you know, with your pals that you wouldn't always do in an interview. And he right. makes it and, and he, you know, he's always very careful uh, not to trash things right. publicly that people have adapted from his work. But you guys got him to talk about how some things just don't work. Some things are not good. And uh, the things that he did like and the things that he thought worked well, I'm glad he likes the dead zone. And, uh, yep. you know, and, I kind of Cujo. Yeah. Cujo and all that. And, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, and you, you, you get the sense like, you know, I, I don't know if he did this with you, but he, he often likes to talk about other things too. Like, what are you watching? What else is going on? What, what are you reading? And he likes recommendations. He gives recommendations. I've, so yeah, I've heard, I've heard that a lot. He didn't do that with us on, on this. I, I think mm-hmm. that mostly because he could sense that we had like 18 million questions we wanted to ask. And, and as you, as you yeah. uh, noted, he's just like, uh, you know, at a certain point he's like, okay, I'm done now. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> you know, but you know all so that, maybe he was just trying to rush through it. All that stuff I said about pet cemetery, what it means and how I interpret it and the significance I have, you know, that doesn't actually have anything to do with him. You know, that's my imprint. That's my feeling. That's something I own. And it's, it's maybe a gift he gave me, but it's mine. It's not his. It's like a, you know, uh, I, I interviewed somebody who's a kind of a famous, pretty famous singer was talking about being in the audience and listening to Bruce Springsteen. And he was saying, you know, Bruce was playing these songs that I fell in love to when I was a teenager. And, you know, the experience I was having in the, in the concert, didn't have anything to do with Bruce Springsteen. It had to do with me and the people I knew and what was happening in my life when I first heard those songs. And like, that's true of books too. You know, when you guys talk about people's Stephen King origin stories, I always find that to be one of the most interesting things in the conversation, but also because you bring them up and you talk about Eric, you talk about your nephews and Scott, you talk about being in military school. And like, I like it because you both, you know, formative. Yeah, formative years, but also like their life, their their connections to people and connections to the world, and uh, none of that has anything to do with Steve. You know, That's true. he writes the book. He writes the book. He pours his heart out, and uh, and then he moves on. And what you feel about it is, it's great. You know, it's like sort of awesome, man. I'm glad you liked it. But um, uh, he might be able to tell you what he was thinking or what went into it, and. Um, but all the interpretations, you know, is Dandelo a Pennywise type creature? <laughs> uh, that's up to you. So, anyway. so, just in the interest of moving this along, <laughs> the title that we landed on for you for for your main feed de- debut was the Man in the Black Suit. Yeah, this was um, honestly not a title that Anthony brought to us. No, it is the result of a, a lengthy conversation back and forth between uh, Braz and I about what would be a good fit for him to do on the show. Mm-hmm. And the man in the black suit felt appropriate to me for Anthony because he is he's a classic Stephen King guy. Like like your knowledge of King is unparalleled as far as I'm concerned. Yes. Like you, you know, your your shit. And this this title has a little bit of uh, prestige to it. It has an interesting history where. You know, it was it was published a few different times before it eventually landed in one of the short story collections. Yeah, uh, it won the O. Henry Award, um, and it's just a classic, top to bottom, uh, old school. You know, Stephen King chiller, uh, a boy versus the devil, basically. You know what mm-hmm. what could be more simple than this? Uh, before we we break into our conversation about that, I'm wondering, Anthony, if you would mind doing the the honors of um, laying out the basic plot of this story. 
This is a uh, kind of like the rhyme of the ancient mariner, which we all, some of us learned in English class sophomore year, you know, where there's a, an old man is telling a story, you know, and it's kind of like the Simpsons. Listen, an old man is talking. Let's gather around, you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> but it, it starts out. I am now a very old man. And this is something that happened to me when I was very young. So this guy's at the end of his life. He's flashing back to something that happened long ago. That's a good little mystery builder, right? Okay. This is something the guy's been keeping close since 1914. And, uh, he's in an old age home. His mind is kind of going. There are these interesting little details that I think the details are what make the man in the black suit a good story. The story itself, the plot is not his strongest. And there's a reason for that, that I did not realize until I got to the end. And he does this thing with his short story collections, where he always includes some kind of afterword where he talks about, gives you a little insight into why he wrote this story. You know, I love those. I think I love them because I, you know, I'm a writer and I'm always curious what's the Genesis. Right. And, um, and when I got to the end, he gives a little, he gives a little hint about why this story exists, but the story itself is when I was nine years old, I walked into the woods to go fishing and my mother warned me not to go past this sort of cross in the stream where the streams sort of break into two. And he goes near that place and he sees a man in a black suit out in the middle of nowhere. And the man has these fiery eyes, these little furnace window eyes. And the guy is a straight up weirdo who <laughs> scares him, uh, makes He's got long fingers like a mannequin and the suit is odd. He doesn't leave footprints where he lays down in the moss giggling. He throws himself down like this weird impish cackle at one point and the, and leaves sort of like a chalk outline of himself, you know, like this sort of silhouette of a body lying in the moss, it just sort of burns it away. And the kid is terrified. He runs the, he throws a fish at the guy that he's caught and the guy's mouth opens like a great white shark. And he just bolts from this guy and the guy doesn't offer him any deal. You know, there's no like devil went down to Georgia thing here. It's just straight up predatory. And the kid escapes and then he goes back to get his reel or get like his basket or something with his father. And, oh, and the, and the, and the devil, this devil figure tells him that his mother is dead. Yes. And that the, you know, that he has a brother who died from a bee sting and like a bee, the same bee has come and killed his mother now. And like, he's sort of torturing him with that before he decides to like feast on him and the kid escapes and he goes back with his dad and they don't see anything and they get the basket and they come home and it's unclear whether the kid is dreaming or not because he does say he lays down and kind of like he's in the sun and sort of dozes off. And then he wakes yeah. up and all this goes down. So it leaves open that possibility. It's kind of a, like um, the, this short story that, uh, that King says inspired him was uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's The uh, Young Goodman Brown, right? And that story is about a guy who wanders into the woods at night. And, and it's sort of like he just sort of witnesses all this weird corruption and mm -hmm. decadence. 
uh, I think maybe he's talking about taking the inspiration more like from, uh, I don't know, like uh, maybe a writing standpoint rather hmm. than a plot standpoint, although they both go into the woods. Uh, but the, the, the thing he says actually inspires it is um, that he had a friend whose grandfather was convinced that he had seen the devil in the woods and he had burning red eyes. So this was a story that King heard from a friend. My grandpa says he went into the woods and saw this guy with flaming red eyes. And you, you just know, I mean, he says this scared him, this scared King. He doesn't say yeah. when he heard it. Like, was he a little kid? I'm not sure. It's very hard to find information on that story. I, I, I dug into it trying to get like a full and recounting then, and I just could not find it. And so he says writing it, writing it was no fun, but I went on with it anyway. And I know exactly what he's doing because my grandfather has some scary ass stories that he told me when I was a kid. Things that he says were true and I've tried to write them and I cannot replicate the feeling I had listening to that story on a rainy labor day, like what? sitting on my front porch. My grandfather told me this story about uh, a man who lived in his neighborhood in the 1920s who had like plotted to kill his entire family. And, you know, these were like these big Catholic families. Mm-hmm. We were all, everybody in the town was Roman Catholic. I'm, I'm Catholic. And like, you know, they all have like eight or nine kids. <laughs> and like this guy sent, all of his young children to church on a good Friday, good Friday service lasts about three hours. And then he got his straight razor out and went to town on his wife and tried to kill his two older daughters who were sick with tuberculosis killing himself. And he told me this story and he said, you know, the daughters fought him off and they survived and he killed his wife. She died on the stairs bleeding out and then he killed himself. And then all the little kids came home from church (laughs) and found this, massacre good lord it was a true story and my parents told me ah your grandfather just makes up this stuff you know it's not true for years when i was little i didn't know if it was true or not it was just a ghost story it was a campfire story and he would say like people were afraid to go into that house because they were afraid they would hear the mother dying on the stairs there was this rumor going around you know and that he was possessed by the devil this is there's a line in man with the black suit that um at the very beginning that I really loved. Let me just find it. It's my copy of the book in Everything Eventual. Or my copy of the story is now marked with all of these sign here, post-it tags. <laughs> but he says, he's describing like the environment around, It's this takes place around Castle Rock. And he says, you know, we hunkered down listening to the wind in the chimney and hoped no one would get sick or break a leg or get a head full of bad ideas. Like the farmer over in Castle Rock who had chopped up his wife and kids three winters before. And then said in the court that the ghosts made him do it. In those days, there were ghosts everywhere. And I love those two things. One, because it reminds me of the story my grandfather told me. And then in those days, there were ghosts everywhere. You can imagine these sort of remote, small towns. There's no electricity or there's electricity, but not everybody has a telephone. There aren't many cars. You know, there's no plumbing. You're kind of at the mercy of superstition. And so... I could tell, like, my, the story my grandfather told me, it percolated in my mind. Was it true? Was the supernatural stuff that they said cropped up around it true? Was the place haunted? Was the guy possessed? What's real? And trying to tell the story in print, like, I tried when I was a teenager to write it, and it just never came out the same way as when he told it. You need that atmosphere. 
you know? Yeah. You need that atmosphere where reality feels a little thin and you can buy into it. So when King says this was no fun to write, I know what he means because he's not capturing it the way his friend told it. He's putting it down. And once you put it down in print, it's more real. And the plot, it doesn't really build to anything. He goes back and the guy's not there. It's not like there's some twist. Just doesn't know if it's real or not. And I think King began, this is a turning point for him. As you said, this won the O. Henry Award. It was published in The New Yorker, which is very prestigious. Much more prestigious than Startling Mystery Stories, volume number, spring number 12, which I recently purchased. It features his second published short story, The Reaper's Image. Hmm. And like, you know, this is a little like toss off genre, Reader's Digest type magazine. But uh, this this one was published in the New Yorker, man. And that's a big deal. And then King started to win, like, didn't he win like the Pen America Award? And he started to get honored for things. And he'd been dismissed as this popcorn writer, this airport writer, or paperback writer. Uh, Penny well, Dreadful. Yeah. I mean, we, know? we've clocked that a number of times on the show that. Yeah, you know, early on he was not getting the respect of his peers, and it took it took many years before. If you go back and read reviews of books he wrote, even in like the early nineties, people are still yeah. being gigantic dickholes to King. Yeah, you know? he's too successful. He's easy to take shots at, you know. Um, but he says he doesn't get why this one was such a big deal. He doesn't think that much of it, <laughs> and and I get what he's saying. And I think what makes it work is it isn't the most twisty, turny story, but he has these little flashes of, of beautiful writing in it. You know, yeah. in those days, there were ghosts everywhere. There's also like where he describes the kid's mother. This story doesn't work unless you're concerned that his mother may actually be dead. And he establishes yeah. that, you know, this is going to be a little bit more of like a writing type discussion, but he establishes that by describing her. And he says, there was a curl of hair lying across the side of her forehead and touching her eyebrow. You see how well I remember it all. This is the old man thinking back. And that one little phrase makes her real. And it it makes him real. It makes him real as a child and it makes him real simultaneously as an old man whose mother is long gone. It's funny. The little, those little details that we remember, we forget so much. Our brain is constantly clearing out the cash and emptying the trash. And yet there are little things that we remember. And he brings those up. The way he describes the stream is uh, he goes, I love this too. I began to hear the hurried, eager gossip of Castle Stream. Like calling, saying the stream gossiped. That's fucking brilliant, you know? And I think what these high-minded New Yorker editors read in this story was not a, was not an especially good page turner. It was just like an elegant piece of writing. And he's done that since, I mean, I think his, I think his writing was always excellent. And yet I think the fact that the, this story could be dismissed as potentially just a dream, like Ambro Bierce's, uh, an occurrence at Owl Creek, Owl Creek bridge. Mm, yes. And that allowed the literary types to let their guard down a little and say, huh, maybe there is something to this. And I think it's very Freudian. I think the kid is dreaming. I don't think any of this happened. You know, the one evidence that something happened is there's sort of a burn mark in the moss that looks vaguely like a human shape. But You say, um, you say one thing, but that's a pretty substantial thing, no? Yeah, but like go to the woods and find some moss. There's, also, you know, is Fisher gone? You know, okay, his fish are gone, right? Uh, do you think there's anything in the woods that might eat a fucking fish that's hanging out? 
Not that I'm aware of, no. Yeah, like a raccoon? Doesn't he keep it in a tackle box? Yeah, he'd have to... I don't know. Like, I no, I think it's legit. I think he actually did witness this. See, but I think we can argue that. I, we think... can, we, I mean, you can definitely argue that. Because at that point, you're basically arguing, is the devil real or not? Is the devil in fact, real? In fact, let me ask you this, because I've known mm-hmm. you for for many years now, I don't think, and, and you and I are most of the conversations we have are, are surface level. Yeah. But like, how are you raised reg- religiously? And what do you believe now? Do you believe in a yeah. literal devil? I don't know. I was raised Catholic, went to church every Sunday. Mm-hmm. Even when we were away, we would find a church. That was a drag. I was an altar boy. <laughs> you know, I don't go to church anymore. I think here's what I think. Now I think there are things bigger than us that we are not capable of understanding. Sure. I think I, I think I have a f- huge flat screen TV in my living room and <laughs> I have three cats that look at this thing like, what the fuck? And, <laughs> and, and I realized I don't know how it works either guys. <laughs> like I couldn't tell you, you know, uh, somebody does, somebody could explain it, so but you I can't. Don't, so you don't then believe in the literal devil. I don't think there is a man with fire <laughs> eyes who's coming for you. A little pitchfork. And a pitchfork. <laughs> you know, he's too busy modeling for hot sauce bottles, you know, like this. <laughs> like, I don't, I think that there is potentially, I've been, you guys have probably experienced this too. I think there have been a confluence of events in my life that I can't explain. One of them is that somehow this, this fucking dope from Western Pennsylvania who got a pet cemetery paperback and decided he wanted to become a writer. Now somehow like, I'm not going to say we're friends, but I, I think maybe we are like, we're friendly. We've talked a bunch of times. He's always nice to me. And that a fact that I have a relationship with somebody I really admire, uh, I think that's kind of weird and a miracle. <laughs> and so yeah. um, I feel very lucky. And I, I think, you know, how did that happen? Is that, is there some, and my, and I've had, you know, my wife and how we've met and all the times we could have missed each other. If I didn't go to this one party, was I being guided by fate? I don't know. Possibly. I have some stories that I'm not going to share here. Of course. But what we're, what we're talking weirder. about there is, is, is fate. If you believe in that and or chance, but if you believe in fate, then you believe in God. I don't necessarily believe in fate. Then you don't. You don't have to. I'm, you're asking what I believe. Yeah, I don't. I think this is all randomized. I, then, I really do. I think that you know. And maybe it's all self determined. Maybe I was yeah. so passionate about him. You know, maybe I was just about, you know the things that I would not king related that I would consider to be huge coincidences in my life. Maybe it's actually a subconscious yearning and that I guided myself to it. Uh, but I would. My belief is that there is some writerly plan. And I'm not going to use necessarily incantation to try to motivate that, like using prayer or going to church. I might go to church if I just want to think and meditate and think back to uh, a cultural experience I had that was formative for me. Uh, But I do believe there is something bigger than we can understand. And so a story like this, yeah, I can, I can hear the argument that the devil's real. You know, Will Smith just used the devil as an excuse for his actions at the Oscars. The devil comes for you, right? 
really? Okay. You think the devil did this? <laughs> yeah. That feels like a fucking yeah. cheap excuse. You know, the devil did, did the devil's publicist put out a statement de- denouncing uh, his actions at the Oscars and the uh, devil has paused production on yeah. bad boys Four. The yeah. devil's like, you know, uh, you know, I got my own problems over here at the Golden Globes. I, I, really was, <laughs> I wasn't involved in this one. Don't lay you that one the on Hollywood me. Foreign Press Association. I think yeah. this is a dream. I think this kid's brother died and he's looking for meaning in that. I think he's afraid his mother could die or that he could lose everything, that he could lose his own life. And he has a weird ass dream in the woods. And. And. But why do you and, believe that when this is coming from Stephen King? Because I think Stephen King is questioning these things. You know, every, every, he has these kind of monsters in his book, and there's no really good term for them. Sometimes he has vampires. Sometimes every now and then he throws a werewolf into the mix. You know, like these sort of classic monsters. You could look at the, at the creeds and the, and the resurrected beings from Pet Cemetery as zombies if you wanted to, right? That's a genre. It's a type of monster. But he has this other kind of creature like a Leland Gaunt or the man in the black suit or the man in the bowler hat in, um, in all the Gwendy books. Uh, he has these sort of like, they're almost deities, like they're these sort of demigods. And I think they're much closer to something that would be like a character from Greek mythology who's like, you know, the goddess of love or the goddess of God of fear or the god sure. of war. You know, and I think these are archetypes that we build in our minds of like, what is that unknowable fate or force that's nudging us along? And sometimes it's malevolent and sometimes it's it's uplifting and positive. And maybe that isn't an external force. Maybe it's our subconscious guiding us. But he plays with that notion. There are these entities that represent an action and they they play with the mortals in, in, uh, in this story. They mess with them the way the gods and demigods used to mess with the mortals in right. Roman and Greek lit. And, and, in, 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 you know, uh, the folk tales of people who lived in the woods and didn't understand the world. So, yeah. you know, I look at this story as a dream. I think it's definitely ambiguous. You're not supposed to know, but I find it interesting that he's telling it from the point of view of a, of a guy whose mind is slipping. And another of the telling lines for me is he can't remember the name of the grandchild who got him the tablet he's mm. writing in, the, the journal. It starts yeah. with an S. So this is a guy whose mind is slipping, but he can remember the curl of his mom's hair, and he remembers this weird dream. Was it a dream? Did this really happen? Am I just breaking down and disintegrating into nothingness? Is there something bigger? Am I about to confront that? And that's what I think makes this a magical story. It's an interesting take. Vespi, uh, do you believe in the devil? And where are you at on the reality of this story? Uh, I do not believe in a devil, but I'm also not sure that there's a, a god either. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm firmly in, 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 uh, in the agnostic yeah. where yes. there are moments where, you know, you, you I spent a lot of time in New Zealand. I've been blessed to have been able to do that. And you go and you look at the beauty of this, this country and you look in the distance and you see far off mountains and the sun hits it in the right way and the hitting the water. And you go that there, it, this doesn't feel, this feels designed, right? So you can, you can have those moments where you go that there may be something bigger. If there is a God, I don't, think that it's anything we can comprehend yeah much like uh anthony and his uh cats and his uh, flat screen <laughs> yeah. um 
and I, but I, I'm pretty sure it's not the, the God that all the Bible thumpers are, or, uh, you know, that, that, that twist, twist the, the words in the Bible and the Bible itself is a very flawed and hateful <laughs> can be very flawed and hateful. Um, uh, What's... you know, which I, I am going to be opening us up to many more one-star reviews on iTunes. Open the doors, like baby. That, but... What's, what, what's that stuff? What's that joke that Steve Martin had back in the day where he was like, imagine if you died and went to heaven and it was just like, they told you like clouds and angels and harps. And he's like, man, in grad school, they told me this was all bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, I don't know. It's uh, in terms of the book itself. I think that there's too many parallels to real Stephen King villains. As you've said, I got a real Randall flag vibe yeah. off of, off of uh, the man in the black suit and precisely for what you mentioned, like the Loki esque mischievousness where he's just trying to twist the knife. He's just fucking with this kid, you know, that he has the power to kill him instantly. If he wants, he shows that he claps his hands and kills the bee that's sitting on his nose, you know, which uh, again, that's another great little detail where, you know, the, the fear of bees is a, uh, undercurrent in this story because it killed um gary who's the the nine-year-olds he killed his brother it's what the man in the black suit said kills his mother um it represents death at this point right and then here's this thing that comes along and kills death right in front of this kid and then proceeds to just psychologically torment him um and uh, uh i don't know there's a little pennywise in there too oh, yeah. there's there's a lot of of what King is really good at in terms of his, his villains where yes, I think it's absolutely supposed to be ambiguous, but I, I just, my instinct is that, that uh, this was a real encounter and that this is something that um, it, it's at least real for the, for the author, which is what, you know, the author of this story, the Gary, the, the old man telling the story. Um, and that's real enough for me, I think is where I, I fall on it. And the subliminal aspect, I think that really ties it all together is it's being told by a man who's so old, he's just, he knows he's not long for this earth, right? Right. And the whole story is about his brother, the fear of his brother dying. His brother died as a boy. And would the same thing take his mom? Would it take him? What if he died young? And he hasn't. Right. He didn't. He beat it. He beat the game. He beat the devil. He's in his 90s now, right? Like, uh, late 90s. And... It reminds me of this Mark Knopfler song. You guys know him, the Dire Straits guy? Yeah, and of course. He has a song, but it's called Heart Full of Holes. I'll, I'll blank on the name of the full album. But um, and there's, it's this, the song Heart Full of Holes is about, uh, as near as I can tell. Kill to get crimson. Kill to get crimson, that's it. I wanted to say, I think it was the King stuff was screwing me up. So I was like, King to get crimson? The crimson king? <laughs> Kill to get crimson. But like this song Heart Full of Holes is about a pawn shop owner who's very old. And he's singing about all the objects in his shop coming to life and like sort of about being a pawn shop owner. And it's very enigmatic. But if you listen to the lyrics, you can kind of discern what's going on. That is, you know, he's imagining the time when his wife dies and maybe he'll just retire and maybe there is no afterlife. And then he recalls like this watch, right? There's this watch that runs throughout the song. And I think the implication is that this guy survived some sort of military incursion, maybe the Holocaust, maybe he was a Holocaust survivor, but he talks about an officer putting a watch in his hand and repair it or die. I was told it's a wonder to me. I still don't understand why I ever survived to be old. 
So he's thinking of this time when, when an, an officer was threatening to kill him if he didn't fix this watch. And he does it and he lives, you know, he lives a long time. But how did he, how did he get here? And I, that's what I thought of when I read this story again, was heart full of hole, holes. How did I ever survive to get old? And yeah, I think it has a lot of meaning and it's very wistful. I'm not with you that it's actually happened. And I think that's <laughs> why it gets the O. Henry. I think that's why it's in the New Yorker is right. that mystery. Maybe it didn't happen. Maybe this is just the final sparks of a mind that's fading out and he's remembering this vivid thing that he thinks happened maybe is in, but he, even he's not a hundred percent sure. And maybe he's going to find out the truth. Maybe not. Yeah, it's Rob Zombie, and that means it's time for the show's mid-roll ad read section. Once again, brought to you by our sponsors at Athletic Greens and new sponsor, Mac Weldon, who Erica will be telling you about in a minute. Let's start with Athletic Greens. We use Athletic Greens products literally every day here at KingCast HQ. I started taking Athletic Greens because, quite frankly, I needed it after all the damage I've done to my body in quarantine. Lots of people take some, you know, kind of multivitamin or something, but it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients. This stuff has those high quality ingredients and doesn't taste like it's super healthy either. In fact, it has kind of a mild tropical taste that Eric and I both look forward to each morning. So what is it? Well, with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, aging, all the things. It even supports mental clarity and alertness, which is something I know I need while recording this show. Also, it's recommended by pro athletes, not just stocky podcast hosts. So right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with a convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's cheaper than purchasing all the separate ingredients yourself and all for less than $3 a day. One scoop and a cup of water every time. Boom, you are done. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash kingcast. Again, that is athleticgreens.com backslash kingcast to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Well done. And Thank we have you. another discount code to give you if you give me just a second to get through all this copy. Like Scott said, we have a new sponsor by the name of Mac Weldon. You know them. They make underwears and sweatpants. And now they are sponsoring this very show. It's no secret we all want to look our best this spring, right? I know I do. Scott, do you not want to yeah, look wanna your look, best? I want to look terrible this spring. <laughs> this summer, I want to be looking good, though. So I'm looking oh, yeah. forward to some of these Mac Weldon underpants. <laughs> You're just going to be rocking around the neighborhood in your Mac Weldons. I got nothing to be ashamed do. of. <laughs> well, whether you want to upgrade your sweats collection or need gear that stands up to the changing weather, Mac Weldon has exactly what you're looking for. And if that's not convenient enough, let me tell you about Mac Weldon's daily wear system. It's clothes that all work together, which granted normal clothes kind of work together too, but Mac Weldon's like work super well together. They're designed to fit together. Yeah, they are designed specifically so it doesn't look like you dressed yourself uh, <laughs> when you're in kindergarten. Every right. one of us has had one of those days. Uh, so whether you're headed to work, going for a run, or just hanging on the couch, getting dressed takes no effort at all. Now, Scott and I haven't had a chance to sample these wares yet. 
Yes, uh, yes. I think that's safe to say. Sometimes we get the stuff <clears throat> early so we can test it out, make sure it's up to snuff. But we have heard such good things about this from people and friends who have used it. And we decided to kind of take a look on their website and kind of daydream like what we're going to get. Maybe we'll try out yeah. some of these boxer briefs. King Cass House doing a little underpants shopping together. It's very cute. It's, it's the next logical step in our in our relationship, business, and friendship. Yeah. I'm very curious about the Airnet X boxer briefs, which sound mm. particularly space age uh, technology ish in their uh, construction. Right. Um, if you look at the pictures on the website, they're like Batman's Under Armour or something. <laughs> they, you know, they got like texture to them. But they're knit um, in the air, or else they wouldn't call it. Yeah, air. well, that's important. You know, we've had the we've had the boxer briefs question on this show mm-hmm. before. I am a yep. boxers or boxer briefs guy. Uh, these are right up my alley. I'm interested in getting my hands on the underpants, as always, <laughs> and and finding. You have a business and, card that says that. I think. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me hold your underpants, um, and. Uh, Uh, I'm curious to see how these stack up against the, uh, you know, frankly, comparatively deplorable uh, boxer (laughs) briefs that I've been wearing, which do not look like a thing Batman would wear. (laughs) Are are you sure? Which Batman? I think that's the question. That's Uh, that's fair. Mac Weldon also has an Atlas jogger uh, section. I'm not a jogger, but uh, I do like the comfort. Like, I'm also not a basketball player, but I wear basketball shorts sometimes because they are comfortable. Mm -hmm. I like comfortable things. They got half zip and full zip jackets built for rain and shine. They got pretty much everything at Mack Weldon. It's all top quality stuff. And guess what? Since they are a sponsor of this show, they have given us a fancy discount to offer to you guys. All you have to do is visit MacWeldon.com slash KingCast and enter in the promo code KingCast. Again, it's MacWeldon.com slash KingCast and enter promo code KingCast for 20% off your entire order. So that's like getting an extra pair of underwear. I haven't done the math. I am not a a scientist. I couldn't rock half a pair of underwear. (laughs) I mean, I guess if you cut the the legs off of it but then it's just briefs yeah then you're just pulling a a yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway mac weldon thank you for sponsoring us we're looking forward to getting those underpants hell yeah i think it's time to get back to this discussion let's do it i'm with you in terms of it being left up for debate but yeah. in my heart of hearts like I think this kid saw some shit. Well, he, he does put that moss thing in there. That's sort of like, and then we drove home and the hook was hanging off the door handle, right? <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> because it, it's, it, it wasn't that vague. It wasn't like, oh, and there was a burn in the moss. It's like the father comes and sees the outline of a full-ass man burnt uh-huh. into the, the ground. You know, it's... Uh, uh, especially if you look at it a little bit kind of as a fable and that's what it really kind of reads like a, I don't know, like a Mark Twainy kind of like early Americana yeah, absolutely folk, folk story. Does. And, and, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't feel like he would have put that detail in there if it, you know, in with the father, with somebody outside of the boy having seen some kind of evidence, whether he wants to believe it or not, if, I mean, obviously, it does feed into the the whole argument, the the debate you can have on the reality of it, and it's another little juicy morsel to chew over. But like, I, I feel like that that's the most telling detail. Yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, um, 
you know, because you you do mention it, it is kind of a trespass that this boy breaks a a, a rule. He kind of goes further than he's supposed to, and so you can you can read it on that angle. You know, of well, of, uh, of you know, don't break the rules or else you're going to meet the devil and and uh, and he may be in for a bad time. He's going to eat your fish. There has to be you something know? that tips the scale slightly toward this did happen, right? There has to be. Yeah. Or else if he goes and it's just like, oh, here's my fish, all's well. Yeah. It's too easy to dismiss as a dream, and he doesn't make it easy for you to dismiss. Right. So uh, you know, I uh, I like that that part of it. So, um, but it's really interesting that this is the demarcation line. Like you were saying, this is the this was published in what ninety four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, October of ninety four, and that's that's the year that Shawshank Redemption comes out. Which I've you know I, I'm very firmly in the belief that this is nineteen ninety four is the line where all the old guard critics are dying off or retiring and the nude guards are coming in that grew up on Stephen King's stuff. At this point, he's been uh, an Institute for 20 years. Right. And, and so you're getting that also, you're getting the Shawshank redemption, which people didn't, you know, realize that Stephen King could do something like that for whatever reason, people forget stand by me and, or view it as like an offshoot. And that's not really what this crazy horror guy does. Uh, Always written meaningful stuff. It's just always, always. It's just every now and then he pops off like a graveyard shift or something, and it's just meant for fun and like, uh, and and he's too successful. Like if he were just right. not as successful as he is, he would be getting a lot more respect. But the res- people resent success. Let's be honest, you know. Of course, yeah. but but it's uh, what I love about you picking this title is it's forced me to kind of look at it going and, and you're like, hey, I found another little piece of evidence, in, you know, to to throw into my my theory that 1994 is the year that people really right. started taking no. Stephen King seriously on a critical level, it like is. on a academic level, on a, you know, kind of higher brow um, thing, you know, because I had no, no idea that he uh, won the O. Henry award for, for the story. And, so, and you know, until we were talking about he's it, he's had a lot of acts in his life, right? Like he's, yeah. he's had his ups and downs and he's always been popular and always been read. But like, that's why I'm not a big collector. Like I don't buy first editions. I don't have any autograph books. I have like a couple of interesting little collector items like the books that mean something to me are the ones I come to first right so right. needful things being the first hardback that I bought with my own money of his like that particular book means something to me my paperback right. that my nanny bought me of pet cemetery means something to me the the copy of it that my eighth grade crush gave to me for Christmas that year mm. like that with the little claw coming out of the sewer grate like that, those are my precious copies of his books but I went on eBay and I found this startling mystery stories from 1969 that had the Reaper's image, which is a story I loved from Skeleton Crew, right? And I had no idea that it was like so old. Skeleton Crew was like, what was that? The mid 80s? when that was published. Yeah. And this yeah, yeah. book was, you know, almost 20 years old at that point. Or this story was almost 20 years old at that point. And I love right. the Reaper's image. Oh, it's such a cool story. And it's yeah. the second one he published. And when I saw this on eBay, I was like, you know what? I want to buy that. And then I was like, why did I do that? Because I'm not a collector of ephemera and items. You know, I'm good with the paperbacks. I'm good with the books I have. But I think it's because I think of that being his second short story. And it's it's before he's Stephen King, right? It's yeah. It's he's a guy who's hoping to break through. And I'm going to tie this back to the 
to the um, man in the black suit is these stories, Pet Cemetery, Man in the Black Suit, other ones we've discussed, like it's about will I make it if I go on this journey, if I take these steps, will I make it? Will I be crushed? Will I be dashed against the rocks? Will I get smashed by a giant 18 wheeler? Da 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 da. da. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> there, you go. there it is. There you go. And, um, sure it and I think of, you know, baby Stephen King, you know, 20 something Stephen King submitting his short story about this weird mirror to startling mystery stories. And, and he was just starting out and hoping for the best. And I just wanted to have a copy of that, maybe to keep myself hungry and keep myself thinking about as I get older, you know, what am I going to do that's adventurous? What am I going to do that's a risk? What am I going to do that's, uh, that's brave or bold? You know, when am I going to carve time out to write the next book or short story that I want to do? You know, when I would, are you and I go would, fishing past, past yeah. the break in the stream. And, and I would never tell him any of this because he would just be like, oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. But I will say thank you, Stephen King, like you for all the inspiration. If, if and, y'all were confronted on the banks of a river by the mm-hmm. literal devil, when you were the age of the kid in this story, like, do you think you would have handled it with as much grace? Or do you think you would just be violently pissing your pants? And, well, that's what the kid does. Died. He, the kid does. I was going to say, what grace? Yes. He pees his pants and runs away. Like, but he, he's still, he, you know, he's showing ingenuity in the moment mm. because he feeds him the fish. Mm. You know, he knows when enough to get away. He does not stop running until he's certain the fucking, the, the devil has fallen off. I don't know. I think it's just fight or flight kicks in. So I don't know how much, right. how clever that is to throw whatever you happen to have at the guy. You happen <laughs> to be a fish. Um, I don't know that I would do it. I'm very stupid. You think you just curl up and yeah. let him meet you? No, I think I would. I you think I would. I think I would pole. swing on the devil and get fucked up. <laughs> That's what I think. <laughs> I think I would try to. I, w- I think I would try to right hook him, and then that would be the end of that. Right. Uh, the, yeah, Wampler would have uh, given into the fight side of the fight or flight instinct. Maybe, um, maybe you could I can't run, run that, run, I, I I run kid, that so fast, but I can I, I can I can land a punch. Yeah. You know, so I I think I would have like on that option first. <laughs> I would have worked with my bulk rather than running from it. Well, and that that you bring up something because the the whole fish feeding thing is really interesting because there's a a build up to it where the you know this guy in the black suit. Uh, who you mentioned he, like he goes into great detail about like his eyes where he's like, there's no irises, there's no pupils. It is just orange. Right. And then he, there's the other detail that sticks out to me from the story is the smell of sulfur, the smell of match heads uh, and all that stuff. And so you have all these things. And then this guy's taunting him, telling him his mother's dead, the bee sting and that there's, and he like goes into detail about that. It's like, and it's your mother's weakness is the reason why your brother's dead mm. because it's her genes, you know, that, that were, that have the, the allergy to the bee sting or whatever uh, your father is the strong one. And you know, your father's the, the reason why you're, you won't die if you get stung by you know, a bee this... kind of thing, you know, like all this crazy psychological shit that's building up to, Oh, and by the way, I'm very hungry. And you know, and he starts, you know, fucking telling him he's going to eat this kid. The kid's instinct is to throw him the fish, which he gets distracted by and gobbles down. And that's how he's able to, yeah. to, to run away. Um, I don't know. There's just a great escalation there mm-hmm. in, in this, you know, small encounter. No, I agree. Well, 
I killed that conversation. <laughs> I, well, I have nothing this. to add to that. What else have we got here? Do you guys see the the same like man in black in man in black suit parallels the same the same uh, Randall flag? Yeah, because kind of, um, kind of look there. I, I, and I remember when Anthony and I uh, first started talking about doing this this story for the show. Mm-hmm. Um, my memory of it, it had been a very, very long time since I read this one. At least I'm going to say like 15 years, maybe. Like I knew this story. I knew it well. I knew it's it's, um, you know, it's uh, the the prestige that went along with it. But um, I hadn't really thought about it in a long time and I certainly hadn't read it. And my dim memory of it was that uh, it was sort of open to debate whether or not the man in the black suit was the devil or not. It is it is very explicit in, in, (laughs) in the story. Up to and including them, like King dropping keywords that you might associate with the devil before he actually appears in the story. Like uh, split is one of them. Fuck. What was the other one? I, I, I can't remember it now. But there was another there was another piece of terminology that that is usually a part of a phrase that's associated with the devil that uh, appears early on in the story. You know, I think before he's even left the house. So it's like dropping hints. And then, you know, the the text reminds you repeatedly uh, via the kid's point of view that, you know, this is the devil. Like I have encountered the devil. The devil was doing this or I'm sitting across from the devil and blah, blah, blah. Like it's it's clearly in there. Whether or not it's true, that's another debate that we've already had. But the kid certainly thinks that. And that was not my memory of it. I, I don't think that the character in this story is intended to be Randall Flagg, but I do agree that it's got very Flagg-like symptoms. You know, that that sort of Loki behavior that I tend to associate with Flagg, the, the playfulness of, of the idea of, of death. And um, yeah, he plays with his food before. He exactly. Eats. There's a psychological aspect. Yeah, That's yeah, also yeah. in Pet Cemetery when Gage comes for Judd and right? takes the form of uh, of Norma and says just vile things to him. Right. Are totally. they true? Are they not? He just yeah. knows the buttons to push in order to torture this guy. And yeah. I think Penny, Pennywise as well has that, that yeah, angle. But also, yeah. I'll tell you what, like, I think there's also something, it's not just, Oh, the, the being feasts on fear. I think that that's a good, like little plot uh, explanation. But the, but the truth is when somebody wants to hurt you, they, they know they could punch you or hit you, you know, bruise you. But if they really want to do damage, they're going to do it inside, right? Totally. They're going to get you inside. And if you've ever had somebody, if it's an abusive parent or rob you of a job, break your heart. Yeah. Even if it's a teacher or somebody who's just mean and they know like how to get in your head, they know they are, they're the meanest people in the world. The cruelest people are also often the most astute because they know what, what they know. They can read you and tell what hurts and they can say that thing to you. And you know, this being, this entity got to this kid. Now, I still think you could argue that's his subconscious. It's it's surfacing the thing he is most afraid of. His brother died. Now, what if his mother goes the same way? What if it's his mom too? That notion of, I'm going to scramble what's inside of you before I torture you. That's a sadism, you know? And I think why that is scary in a thrilling way to read is because we know it's out there. 
It's why, all right, I'll help you guys get a couple more one-star reviews. It's why people were so freaked out the minute Donald Trump was elected, because we knew, those of us who knew, who could tell, that this yes. guy was sick, and he yes. would hurt people if he could, and he wouldn't care. And we could read that, we could sense that predator in him, that there, this was a guy who would make fun of a disabled journalist in front of a roaring crowd. This is a guy who would do it. We knew what he was capable of. We could read it. You can smell it like sulfur. Reveled in cruelty. Yeah. I remember, I remember the morning, like the morning after that. Mm -hmm. And I had stayed up all fucking night, Mm -hmm. you know, more or less the night before I got like three hours of sleep that night. And I remember the next morning, my dad called me and uh, I knew why he was calling, Mm -hmm. but like got out of bed enough to where I was like sitting on the edge of it to pick up the phone and talk to him. And, uh, I was, I'll never forget. Like he, he was like, um, so, uh, did you see? And I was like, it's, I just burst into tears because, and and I said to him, it's a, it's a victory for hate is what it is. You know, this, that's what just got voted for at that point. I did not, I mean, he ultimately exceeded my, the realm of possibility in my mind in terms of how much damage he can do or how dark shit could get. Yeah. But even at that point, I knew fully well what was within the realm of possibility and that enough was alone. And it got so much fucking worse than I ever believed possible. And uh, I'm still, I'm still scared shitless of it because I think that, I think there's a, a a pretty viable chance that he'll get reelected. And, um, I don't know like how the fuck I will personally react to that on an emotional or mental well, level if it occurs and it scares the shit out of me because Christ things aren't good now, but they were worse then. And if it mm-hmm. comes back, it's going to be twice as bad. And yeah. I don't fucking, I, you know, I honestly don't want to live in that fucking world anymore. You know, it's, it, it scares the shit out of me. I think that's why King was such an effective resistance voice too, is because he's been writing about this his whole life. You know, Mm -hmm. people make the comparisons to Greg Stilson and, you know, Pennywise, the sadism of it, the sadistic, the the glee and the cruelty, like enjoying the cruelty and then enjoying the cruelty because it was an, it was a, it was a way of demonstrating strength. Like I'm dominating you. So I can ridicule you. If I can hurt you, then I'm, in control of you. That's really what it is. And have an arena full of people cheering on, you know, that's the, that's the real sinister part of this. And so you say like, do you believe in the devil? I don't believe, like, I don't believe in the, as a guy in a black suit with flaming eyes in the woods. Right. I believe there are human beings out there who do not care about right and wrong, who do take pleasure in dominance and asserting control. They get strength from it. And strength is attractive to other fearful people. And so mm-hmm. that compounds the, the power they have. And I think that's as close as you're going to get to a, yeah, there's the devil. It's, the devil doesn't care about what's right or wrong. The devil cares about what pleases him and what he can take and what how he can nourish and feed himself and those who aggrandize him and support him. And so, yeah, you got to be careful out there because that is a part of human nature. Empathy is not a universal trait. <laughs> and so right. neither is generosity or any of the other kind uh, gestures or emotions we talk about. So, you know, these characters King has been writing about who, who, who are bleak and twisted. 
they're real. They're not supernatural, but it is a part of human nature. We're getting off on a tangent, but you raise an interesting point. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately because, well, for all kinds of reasons, but I, I grew up in, um, I grew up in Dallas. I grew up around a lot of casual, like homophobia and racism and, you yeah, know, it was the suburbs of fucking Dallas. You know, you name it, I've heard it. Um, and it was sort of treated normally there. Or it was, not sort of. It was treated normally there. And so even though me and my um, the group of friends that I had were very left-leaning and, you know, we had multicultural friends or, or gay mm-hmm. friends or, or, you know, stuff like that. But we're still, like, every one of us was still, like, telling the same, you know, um, unacceptable jokes. Sure. Right. You know, 20-something years ago that... Humans that, are flawed. We're, we are... Yeah. We are mis- and, and we are misled, you know? We are... We were, but, you know... Um, susceptible to what you're taught and what the environment you're in. Yeah, it takes a big... It takes a big heart to say, I'm not like that. Or, I don't, you know what? That's well, not it cool. took me... Not well, here's the point I was getting to. It took me leaving Dallas... Mm-hmm. And removing myself from the entire culture there, moving to a new city, getting a new whole circle of friends who were even further um, to the left than than my friends previously were. And realizing that they were right, you know, you might have used like really hurtful uh, terminology or made made terrible jokes when you were young, but also like you, your heart wasn't in it. And yeah. I've. I, so I found myself wondering a lot, like just in the last few months, like what's the difference between me and these other people I grew up with? You know, these people that I know, like in their heart, don't give a shit about, you know, snuffing out uh, uh, gay people or trans folks who themselves believe believe in. And in fact, I know have had to obtain abortions before, you know, I I, I think. Like, what's the difference between me and them? And the only commonality I can find, and I again, I've thought about this a lot, and I've gone through the names, is that I moved away. I got away. I got out of that fucking environment, and I opened my eyes to a, a different world. Yeah, and, you, got and out, I, you got out of the cloud. You got out of the mist. You know, you got out. Is of that the, is oh. and if and if that's mm-hmm. as simple as it is, if we're just talking about regional shit, like, how do you solve a problem like that? There is no solving a problem like that. It's just that's where it's going to fester. And that's yeah. that's a really, really, really fucked up thing to think about and confront at at this age. That uh-huh. there's just going to be some places and some people whose whose hearts you cannot change. And then that and I what? think we have we're to be open. I think we have to be open to change because to say, hey, you, you, you've got beliefs that are misguided or you're, you know. I think the best thing you can do for a friend that you love who says something that you think is kind of awful is that's yeah, not cool. It's not cool. Let's, we don't say that. Let's not say that word. Let's not say that. Let's not think that way, you know? Right. And I think, uh, uh, you know, you probably experienced that getting out of your community and you Absolutely. met people who said, uh, yeah, you know, that's not, I don't like that. You know, I maybe had, they I said had a few, more I had a few people set me straight, but and I it, think, it, you know, it, it's just like, you know, but if think if somebody says, "Hey, that's horrible," go. I'm casting you back into the snake pit. Like, I, I do think there has to be a willingness to say, "Human beings grow and evolve. We do hurt each other. We are afraid, and that fear motivates us to seek power." 
through cruelty. You know, that's a subject that's always fascinated me is that you could have everybody be exactly the same. And yet there are people in that group who will want to assert dominance and they will find a simple difference to exploit, no matter what it is. Yeah. Human beings use These people wear green t-shirts. Use, human don't. beings use difference in order to assert dominance and power when they're afraid. And I think, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of fear motivate people and, you know, not to get all Yoda on you, but like uh, you fear leads to hate. And it's, that's just, a, a, it doesn't matter if a little green puppet says it, that's true. <laughs> you know, it's, and I think uh, that's the thing King has always explored is, you know, what one reason I know, Scott, you and I share a, a kind of affection for the, for needful things. Cause that's a, that's a, that's a book about relatively good people. Some of them are not very good, but like uh, relatively <laughs> all right people. You know, there's some who are really sick, secretly sick, you yes. know, but most yes. of them, even the guy, uh, what's his name? The, uh, the, the um, selectman. The, who sort of becomes oh, the villain. Oh, Buster. Buster. Yeah. You know, even he's just, yeah, he's maybe kind of a jerk, or scummy, double dealing businessman, but like, Gambling he's not the addict. worst. Yeah, he's not the worst. But what, what this story does is it shows how there are all these fissures in the society, this little closed bubble of a town. Totally. And, and how you can begin using misunderstanding and, and resentment to pry those further apart until the whole thing collapses. Exploiting and ignorance until you know, it becomes hate. You know, Leland Gaughan is a demagogue. That's what he is. Yes. He just quietly does it and get guides people one by one to turn against each other. You gonna let, you know, can you let him do that? You gonna let him get away with that? It's not even that person's fault. And he also, that's the brilliant thing about that book too, is the person, what's her name? Nettie. She gets mm -hmm. mad because, uh, so somebody splashes I'm, the I'm laundry. Up the plot. They throw mud, yeah, but mud it's not on even the, laundry, the person yeah. she thinks who did it. It's like the whole book is about scapegoating. It's blaming somebody for, for something that they had nothing to do with just because you're going to put the blame on them. Not just scapegoating, but also how easy it is to fool motherfuckers. Yeah. And you want to thinking that, that scapegoat is correct. And that's, yeah. that's about prejudice and bigotry, blaming yes. people for something that happens to you that they have nothing to do with. And yeah. I think he's a really keen observer of human nature. Uh, our buddy, Steve, <laughs> and, uh, yes. you know, our best friend, Steve. Yeah. yeah. You know that, and that's what, that's why I think there's, you, you can have a whole show. that's just about his work and, uh, every conversation you have, you might have a thousand conversations about pet cemetery and every one of them is different, you know? And that's why I like listening to them. I've obviously thought about that book a lot. I want to hear Guillermo's take on it. I want to hear others, other interpretations. I love my favorite of your episodes is Brian Fuller talking about Christine and reading the uh, LGBTQ uh, perspective on that story. And uh, I'm excited for his adaptation for that very reason. Like that's a fascinating window into the book. And I don't know if it was written with that intent, even subconsciously, but I think it's, a, a well-made tool can be used in a lot of contexts. And mm -hmm. I think that shows that the power of that story is that I think King tapped into something about human nature, about growing up, about finding your own identity and how we glom on to power, whether it's a bully or it's this mystical car that makes us feel strong, you know, that make makes us empowered. Uh, that's a symbol. That's a metaphor. 
all of that interpretation is really wonderful. And I think that demonstrates the strength of King's, uh, of King's work. Absolutely. It does. I don't, you know, when we have Brian on the show, he's, you know, his role on the show usually is to apply a, a, a queer lens to, mm-hmm. to King's work. There's zero doubt in my mind that it was, that none of those texts were written from that context or with that in mind. How, how could they fucking possibly, frankly, well, you I know, don't know. The, the relationship between yeah. Arnie and Dennis and Christine it's I just don't think I, I, I honestly do not believe that's what King was going for. You know, I, I think you can absolutely read it th- that way, but I would I would bet no vital parts of my de- anatomy that that was not what King was going for there. But to, but just to finish the thought, mm-hmm. I think the value in those in those kind of takes and why I live love listening to Brian so much is it's yet another fucking example of like as you're saying the universality of king you know th- that's what gives these stories those power that they can be interpreted that way that they that there is so much to talk about here we've been we've been talking for an hour and a half about this story mm-hmm. that's 25 pages yeah long. i know takes, you know you <laughs> can, 12 minutes early. yeah yeah we can yeah we, we can go on and on and on like there's it's it's all what you're bringing to the table and the fact that he can bring that out of you and make you want to talk about the things that we're we're talking about today or that brian might be talking about on the show you know that's what those are the the real bona fides i i think of a great writer it's Mm -hmm. not the it's not the artists or 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 the awards or how many movies you got adapted or any of that bullshit it's it's how how big of a fucking spectrum of people are you able to communicate with by these words? And that's why King is a fucking master. And you may be right that it's not a conscious thing that he embeds in the story. But, you know, I saw Ray Bradbury speak once and he said, I write and a little demon puts meaning in the story. And then when I'm done with the story, I read it and go, oh, that's what that was about. Hmm. And I think... I know, actually, I can. I know this for a fact about King. Is I, I think he has intense friendships. You know, his his friend Russ Dore, who passed away. I don't think I'm saying anything out of school, but I remember when that happened, and I had expressed condolences to him. And that was a very close friend. I think he's somebody who understands the closeness of friendships, mm-hmm. and you know, the closeness between Arnie and Dennis is intimate, and it's more. And there are even lines in there where they're kind of like, you know they're kind of brushing each other off with little slurs like, ah, you know, we're not, he's holding him in the car, right? There's one point where he's holding him in the car and he kind of dismisses it. And, and what if somebody saw us, you know, what would they assume? And I think like, I think that's, that's an acknowledgement of the intimacy that, you know, that these guys, these characters who couldn't acknowledge that intimacy, it's nonetheless there and it's explicit in the text. And so I think he was exploring that is the, close bond maybe you call it a brotherhood maybe it's something more maybe it's on a sliding scale you know but there is a love between those characters i i absolutely agree with you on that point where where i draw the line is i don't think that king is thinking about it in a sexual or romantic no i don't not necessarily yes absolutely it's intimacy but that intimacy that's that guy that let's face it young guys are afraid to acknowledge is a real thing because they don't you know they have a backwards, 
bigoted or prejudiced view of that. So, you know, but I think that's what makes him, again, the whole reason to talk about this is I think he's really attuned to human nature and how we both feel things and how we put up walls to prevent from feeling those things, you know, to prevent from acknowledging those things. Eric, you got anything you want to add here? No, I mean, you guys are, are right on. I mean, we, we've long had the conversation about his instinctual understanding of the outsider and how everybody yeah. at some point mm-hmm. feels like the outsider. So there's always a, a way to relate to his work. And that's, you know, that's ultimately the key, I think, to King. I mean, there's many keys. There's yeah. his ability to realistically draw these characters so you can project yourself into them or into the story or, you know, experience it through them. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's many reasons why Stephen King is Stephen King, but, you know, I think um, in terms of the universality, what you were discussing, uh, about his understanding of the outsider is is kind of a the biggest key to to his work. And, and the man in the black suit, know. I think, when you boil it all down, it's about a kid who who can't deal with the fact that his brother died, and he he doesn't know how to articulate his fear that this could happen to somebody else that he loves or to him. All he can do is try to outrun it. All he can do is desperately throw whatever he has at it and hope he escapes. And he does. He makes it to the end of his life. And that's the story. You know, it's just try to outrun the devil. Hmm. And we do that every day. Beat the I devil, right? I Isn't agree. that a thing? I don't I, I want to yeah. say this. I don't agree with your take, Anthony. Yeah. But you're kind of selling me on it. It's that's okay. But that's the beauty of the story, is we don't have to agree. Is it each oh, this, yeah. again, this comes back to uh it's a to, viable reading, is all I'm saying. This is you know, a, and it's the, the, it's well put. This comes back to King himself and all, you know, our, our discussion about how people want to tell him what their book, what his books or stories mean to them. Doesn't it, you know what? At that point, he has he has written it and and sets put that little sailboat into the into the stream that's flowing down the gutter and where it goes is is uh, up to you, you know, hmm. and it's it's your ownership of it. It's your experience with that story. And uh, I think that's why he's easy to adapt or not necessarily easy, but why he's easy to work with. And, you know, he, he, hey, you want to you want to adapt the story? You want to change it to, from Gage to Ellie? Uh, OK. You know, and I know there are decisions that have been made over adaptations that he doesn't like and doesn't necessarily understand why they had to, like, scramble his, you know, uh, his book and make something completely different out of it. But he kind of lets them do it because that's your take on it. And everybody who reads his book is making their own movie. They're making their own film and their own imagination from that. And, and uh, you know, that's just what we do. That's what we do here. We interpret. As long as you're not the lawnmower man, then he will. <laughs> yeah, that's like that's like. Oh yeah, I'm gonna just I'm just gonna take your name and put it on an entirely <laughs> different story. Like, yeah, that's my interpretation of the book. It's, it's completely different, and uh, the one similarity is a lawnmower. And my God, Eric, we've brought it back around to me. I have to go mow the lawn. <laughs> yes, we, we've, we've been able to bring it back to the lawn and yeah, our electric, electric mower. Out. I love how you were like, well, "Do you really listen to us while you mow the lawn?" I do. I swear to God, <laughs> that doesn't seem plausible. Lawn mowers are loud. Well, this was a a very <laughs> chewy episode, and so you've got something to look forward to if you like hearing the sound of your own voice. Uh, oh, once that's this my goes favorite. Live. I will definitely not be listening to this one, so I'll be sad. <laughs> I'll take that bet. This is usually the point in the show where we open up the floor to the guests. Like, what are you, what are you working on? Well, 
in May, I have my first cover story for Vanity Fair. And since we don't know when this is dropping, I can't really say what the subject is, but I'm really excited. Dream come true to to, to do that. And uh, in the meantime, I've got some interesting stuff coming up about Jurassic World and Jurassic Park. And uh, yeah, I guess, I guess I'm in the secrecy business right now, so I can't say <laughs> too much. But uh, yeah, that's sort of where that's what I'm working on right but now. People can still find all your work at, at Vanity Fair. Yeah, and- you can find me at VanityFair.com. You search my name, you find me there. It's probably the only place you'll find me. I'm not on social media any other places. Uh, not with like a public account, you know. Mm-hmm. So- Interviewed a lot of people in your time. Who's the biggest dick? Who's the oh biggest dick? Well, I wouldn't call him. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I wrote a story that you can find f- for Entertainment Weekly. Uh, it's called "Who's Afraid of Tommy Lee Jones?" <laughs> and I'll and I'll I'll say this: if you ask me who is the most difficult interview, and who is one of my, who is my favorite interview, is those actually would be the same. Like I really like talking to Tommy Lee Jones because he's smart, and he, I just feel like he sharpens my skills just to a razor's edge you have to be so quick and you have to anticipate where he's going and how he's going to deflect like but i also think it's worth it he's interesting and smart he just makes you work so hard to get an answer and so that story i think is a funny story i don't resent it i don't have any bad feelings for him i love him he's he's hard to talk to <laughs> and uh that story is years old. It's still one of my favorites. Steve, Stephen King is very easy to talk to. A delight. Just funny. And, you know, he cracks me up and he gives me a hard time and tells me I need to get back to work on writing my own fiction. And when you're, your hero tells you that, uh, you better listen, man. What are you waiting for? Uh, you know, well, you got to mow the lawn first. I got to mow. Hey, this, this thing's not going to mow itself, man. And, uh, you know, I think one of my favorite not a hard again not he's not a dick at all he's really nice as uh, spielberg i've had some good interviews with him he and king like i'm kind of like the dueling steves i've both interviewed both of them over and over again and 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 gotten them to do some interviews i didn't expect they would do and it's been right. really great but, but anthony thank you so much for being here today this was this this is a really interesting episode i'm, I'm glad we got this one on the books uh this was great Oh, it's such a pleasure. To, I love both you guys. And uh, I, like I said, I love listening to the show. And it's just, as you could tell, I don't have a lot to say about King. But thanks for drawing me out. Yeah, you barely talked on this, dude. You know, That's true. Like, eh, he's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Many thanks to Anthony Bresnikin for joining us for that very deep conversation where we talk, you know, we, t- we ask the hard questions like, Hey, so what if your kids died? A light <laughs> moment in the history of the King cast. Yeah. That question. Uh, that was an interesting <clears throat> question, Scott, but I, I'm, I'm weirdly glad you asked it because Anthony had such a great, like honest, heartfelt insight into, yeah. in, into, uh, you know, kind of how he learned to deal with grief and, and the pending possibility of death because of King. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, you should never be afraid to ask the tough questions. Just be fully prepared to get for someone to maybe get mad at you and have to backpedal furiously, just in case. <laughs> this is becoming kind of your trademark now, because you asked Stephen King, like, hey, are you scared of dying? <laughs> and now I'll start like, asking all the fucking guests. I don't care. Yeah. Are you yeah. scared of dying? No. What about your kids? Are you scared of your kids dying? I think that should be your, your, your new thing. <laughs> 
You worried about them at all? Hmm? They safe at night? Yeah, that'll be that'll be good. Just scaring yes. the shit out of the guests right at the top of the show. Yeah, yeah. I'm all yeah. for it. I hope you do it. Uh, mm-hmm. All right. So now it's time to talk about what's coming up on the show. Uh, I'm going to kick things off by telling you guys a little something about next week's main feed episode. Usually, this is the point where we go. Here's the title, uh, and we're going to keep the guest a secret and and. Uh, mm-hmm. Save that for closer to release, but we are not doing that this week. This week, we are telling you who our guest is, but we're not telling you the title, and we have a reason why. So, our guest, well, he's kind of a loser. He is none other than Bill Hader himself. It Chapter 2's grown-up Richie Tozier, and, you know, just one of the funniest people that's ever existed on this planet. This was something we'd hoped to have uh, made work, and boy, did we get it. With one curious wrinkle to the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just um, a little bit. When we're getting someone on the show, it's... Do you want to do the show? And then if it's a yes, it's like, great. Here's what we need from you. We need you to pick a title and we need to work out a recording date, right? We set up the recording date. I laid out everything we'd need and everything was good to go, except as of several weeks before the recording, we did not know his title. You know, we didn't want to be pushy with Bill Hader. He's a he's a gentle man and, you know, a big guest. We don't want to spook him. So we're like, well. Maybe they'll get it to us eventually. Long story short, we did not find out what Bill wanted to talk about on the show until very, very, very shortly before we were actually (laughs) recording. So Vespi and I got very little prep time on this one (laughs) and wandered in more or less blind to the conversation. So it was a very unique recording situation, and we're going to maintain that air of mystery. What we experienced while recording with Bill Hader for you, the guests at home, uh, you'll see this is the name of this episode will be Bill Hader versus a series of question marks. And you'll just have to tune in next Wednesday to find out what it yes. is Mr. Hader wanted to, dis- to discuss with us. I, I can promise you that it is Stephen King related. He is a mm-hmm. big Stephen King fan. Oh, yeah. Uh, not just because he was in a Stephen King movie and played Stephen King once on SNL. You can tell he means a lot to uh, to Bill, to Mr. Hader, sir. And uh, yeah, and we do focus on in on one title, but we're going to let that be a little secret because we wanted to let you guys know that Bill Hader was coming on the show. We're excited about it. Huge mm-hmm. fans of Barry. The new yeah. season of that's coming up. And uh, yeah, I can't wait for you guys to hear it. It's it's an episode on the longer side, too. So for anyone wondering, yes, uh, our buddy Matt Fraction helped hook this up. Yes. Thank you, Matt. Yes. Thank you, Matt. All right. So what's happening on our Patreon this Friday? Oh, this is an episode I've been wanting to do for a long time, but my previous uh, ideas regarding what this episode would be um, either turned out to be illegal or um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, uh, I could not get an interview from the person I would really want to talk to about it, about it. But uh, we are going to discuss the notorious blacklist ranking screenplay uh, Maximum King. By Mm. Shea Hatton. As I just said, this made the blacklist several years ago. Um, Shea wrote it when he was, uh, I believe, 22 years old. Something like that. And it is a highly fictionalized, darkly comic retelling of the making of Maximum Overdrive featuring Stephen King himself as the main character. He is not painted in a sympathetic light. Mm, Um, No, sir. (laughs) <laughs> which uh, you'll find out on the episode how Eric and I, uh, our, our opinions differ on this one. But um, we talk about the script and and what works about it, what doesn't, why 
it could never be made, how it stacks up against other, you know, like kind of biopic things or like mm. movies about the making of movies. We get into all of that. And so to do that, uh, we knew we wanted somebody to discuss it who had plenty of experience reading scripts. To that end, we brought in a gentleman who you will know from uh, from Twitter as Bitter Script Reader. Uh, his real name is Adam Malinger. He is a staff writer on uh, Superman and Lois. Uh, this man has read and forgotten more screenplays than I ever have. And I've read a whole bunch of them. We shot him a copy of the script. He read it. Uh, he enjoyed it. I think he enjoyed it on initial read more than he did after thinking about it for a little bit because he was a little <laughs> cooler on it on the air than, right. than he was when we were talking about it. But yeah, we're going to get into all of that shit. And I'll, I'll tell you what those ideas I had were for. Uh, some other episodes about Maximum King that wouldn't work for one reason or another. It's a good app. All right. Yeah. So we got a packed couple episodes heading your way. Maximum King this Friday on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash the King cast sign up. We got lots of good shit over there. And then next week, the great Bill Hader joins us for a lengthy discussion about question mark, question mark, question mark. Lots to look forward to folks. All right. We'll see you guys then. Adios. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. 